Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I would like to thank our sponsor, QVAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical tasks, developing deep personal relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Colleagues, is your organization thinking about a capital campaign, hiring a new development officer, or taking your fundraising efforts to another level? How about inviting myself and another member of Responsive's consulting team to facilitate a two-day sense-making experience for your team? Our two-day sense-making retreats are custom-designed to ensure that your entire team is making sense of what's most working in your favor and what's getting in your way. If this sounds like something you might be interested in, click the simple form in the show notes and we'll be happy to arrange an introductory call. Hi, Andy. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. This is uh, recording number two. You and I uh, started first and foremost on my, hot, you know, technology on my laptop, and then we uh, we ran into some problems there, and so we said, you know what, we're just going to meet on our cell phone. So here we are having this conversation a second time. Um, and uh, and I'm thinking, as I was telling you before we hit the record button, I may actually go back to using the old trusty iPhone because this is actually uh, I'm sitting here in my on my back porch enjoying a cheap cigar and having a conversation with a new friend so uh so Andy I'm delighted to have you here on the podcast how about uh, before we dive into our conversation we ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners lovely uh hi Jason I'm Andy Robinson I'm a consultant I'm a trainer I'm a facilitator I do a little bit of everything. I'm sort of the Swiss army knife of nonprofit consultants, being a generalist. And to correct you, I'm actually calling you from a landline because I live in rural Vermont where the cell service is weak and um, the speed on my internet is poor. So I'm going as analog on the technology as I can. Um, I'm based in Vermont. I've worked all over North America. I've worked in 47 states. I've worked across Canada. I've had my own consulting practice for about 27 years, and I'm also also the author of six books relating to fundraising and nonprofit management. And I'm delighted yeah. to be your guest today. Thank you. You know, I was telling uh, you're going to be a part of the conference, and I want you to first let's let's start off with asking you to tell us a little bit about the conference. But I was talking yeah. to Mazarin, uh, who's hosting that particular event. Uh, she was on the podcast here, I don't know, four or five weeks ago. 
And she mentioned that she had Andy in the lineup. And I was like, Andy, Andy. And I was trying to connect the dots. And I've been in the fundraising space about, I don't know, I, I think it's 23, 23 years is probably since I probably picked up my first fundraising book. And I told Mazarine, I said, I bet Andy's one of the first authors that I picked up. And I, I, I still haven't quite figured out which book that happened to have been. Um, but, uh, but tell us a little bit before we dive into our regular conversation, how about you tell us about the conference that you're a part of with Mazarine and for the sake of our listeners, we'll make sure to put some information there in the show notes. Appreciate that. Uh, shout out to our mutual friend, Mazarine Trays, who is also a consultant and organizes some really interesting conferences. And this one is specifically about nonprofit consulting and how to serve as a consultant for the nonprofit community. It's called the Nonprofit Consulting Conference, which you can Google and find your way there. It's August 25, 26, and I believe there are about a dozen sessions. It's pretty rich, and I'm doing a session called So You Want to Be a Consultant? Question mark. And, you know, it's sort of my overview, and I will say something I've done for a couple of years now that I don't actually charge for. It's just me giving back to the community is I have supported and mentored and trained a number of people who are coming into consulting and training and facilitation as their career. And in many cases, I don't know your story, Jason, but you'll tell me perhaps, is, you know, I started out as a, as a frontline fundraiser. I worked for nonprofits for 15 years, primarily as a development director. And then uh, one day I had this idea that I wanted to have my own business and teach people some of what I had learned on the job. So I gradually built a consulting practice. And now one of my missions, my professional missions in life is to support other people in doing the same. Because, you know, frankly, back in the day, people helped me. There were people I called up who were successful, established consultants. And I asked them questions like, how do you get work? And how do you put a contract together? And how much do you charge? And what are your clients asking for? And how do you manage your time successfully? And, you know, what else should I be thinking about that I don't know? So part of my work now is supporting people who are coming into the consulting field. And, you know, as you and I discussed last time, and we may come around to it again, there's a lot of work out there, right? Um, You know, I think part of the abundance mindset is not just for fundraisers, because it's essential for fundraisers, but I think it's also true for those of us who are serving the nonprofit community. So um, if that's an interest of yours, I hope you'll join us at the conference. If you have uh, an established consulting practice and you want to learn some new trips, new tricks, new tips, new ideas, uh, I think it's going to be a good use of your time and I think a good investment of your money. So I hope you'll check it out. Yeah, so we'll make sure to put some information in the show notes so all of our listeners can find out more about that. Um, to answer your question, why, you know, very, very briefly, I probably most got into consulting primarily because I have a, I have a, since about 10 or 12 years old, I've got, I'm one of those kids that was early diagnosed with ADD. And so I get bored really easily. And so uh, consulting tends to, rather than hopping from job to job and adventure to adventure, I choose consulting. And, um, and so I have found it to be very meaningful work to, uh, to partner alongside you know, executive directors and chief development officers, et cetera, et cetera, as they figure out, um, rather than me being the one hopping from job to job, um, I can help keep people in their jobs. So, um, wow. And, 
Andy, we uh, we ask our guests to always come on with a big idea or bold opinion. Uh, you and I already worked our way through this once, so we should be pretty warmed up on this uh, this conversation. And I think you and I have a lot of syn- synergy between our our thoughts about this particular subject. Uh, but what do you got for us today? Well, today we're going to talk about uh, the joys, pleasures, and challenges of ambiguity. And I want to set this up with a quick story. Some years ago, I was hired by an organization called the Institute for Conservation Leadership, and they're icl.org. You can check them out. They're essentially a management support organization for the environmental and conservation community. And I was hired to do some research and write a report about what leadership looked like in networks and coalitions and collaboratives. And the idea is it's maybe one skill set to lead an organization. It might be a different skill set to lead a group of organizations. So I interviewed about 20 colleagues around the country who were in positions of that, doing that work. And I synthesized it all down and you know, wrote a report for the client, which is available online. If you go to their website, you can find it there. It's called The Less Visible Leader. And one of my takeaways, and I heard this over and over again, is that people said a leadership skill is comfort with ambiguity. We don't know what the rules of engagement are. We don't necessarily know who's inside the coalition and who's outside the coalition. We don't necessarily know who is leading at any particular moment because it tends to change based on the work. And folks who needed a lot of structure and detail around that structure sort of went crazy in that environment. But people who could sort of roll with it and understand that we're not always going to have things nailed down and that's okay, we're going to proceed forward together, um, they did well in that space. So... In the face of COVID, and we are, you know, two and a half years into this pandemic, I chair a board and somebody asked me recently what was, you know, my best skill in terms of running this board. And I said the same thing. I said, I'm comfortable with ambiguity. I don't necessarily know yeah. what the rules are here. I don't know when this is going to end. I don't know what the end's going to look like. Uh, we just have to make space for that. And I know you have an interesting fundraising take on this question, which I'd love to kick it back to you because I was I was fascinated to hear about how this applies to fundraising in your mind. Yeah, yeah. So we I appreciate that, Andy. So at Responsive, we have a uh, what we call an organizational design model where we try to train the organization on how to sort of think through what we call these three lanes. And the the, the outermost lane is what we call your know, lane one is where you acquire the donor. It's the new acquisition activity. And the innermost lane is is typically where your where your capital campaigns, your endowments are happening, where the most significant gifts happen. Um, and we envision these three lanes as sort of running concurrently, almost like the beltway around a major city with the with the organization's mission sort of at the center of this. And what we call that middle lane, lane two, uh, between new acquisition and between between the galas and the golf tournaments and Giving Tuesday and between and before you ask your donor to give you a million dollars to fund your next building project was what we call the messy middle. And that messy middle is a is this is this place where one of the things we always preface with when we're talking about this, it's not necessarily a quote unquote a middle donor program or a major gifts program. But what we're actually saying about the messy middle is, is that it's the place where the organization chooses to put the relationship ahead of the gift. It's where they go 
It's where they make the messy they they make the investment in sort of reconciling whether this relationship is right, whether this is you know whether they want to invest in us, whether we want to invest in them. Um, and so it's where the you know it's where the relationship comes first. But like any relationship, I mean, even like the little bit of relationship you and I have sort of formed here um, over a few period of emails and a couple of phone calls now, you have to sort of invest in that relationship to see where that opportunity goes. And I don't think organizations, to get back to the notion of ambiguity, I don't think comfort organizations, when it comes to fundraising, are particularly comfortable with your idea <laughs> of ambiguity. I think we've yeah. designed, and when I think about the, when I even think about some of the my colleagues in the consulting, other consultancies, for example, sometimes I think that what they're high, what we're being hired in for is to eliminate the ambiguity and to, to, to almost provide a degree of certainty and predictability that you and I can't provide. Um, and I tend to think that guys like you and I, folks that are in consulting roles like ours, ought to be actually the ones who are teaching the organizations to do like what you're describing how to navigate that ambiguity, that messiness. Um, Fundraising is messy work. And, yeah. uh, and if we don't invest in that, I think, it, I think it ultimately lets a lot of us down. Does that make sense? It does. And, you know, we're, we're whatever, three or four conversations into this now, and you haven't asked me for a gift yet. So obviously we're still in the right. middle. <laughs> <laughs> I, haven't asked you for, I haven't asked you for any money. I haven't asked you for a contract. Um, yes, exactly. Um, Exactly. So, you I mean, nor I, neither of us. Let's let's flip this for a second. Um, and I'm a believer in metrics. I think it's good to measure the impact of your work and to measure the impact of your fundraising and all of that. So I don't want to trash the whole metrics thing. But I also want to say that some stuff can't be measured. And why this middle is messy, it is the space where it's hard to put metrics on the work. And so, yeah. you know, sometimes if you're in a relationship business and you're, you know, maybe you're, you know, major gifts officer and you've got 100 or 150 or 200 relationships that you're managing, whatever the number is, you know, you're tracking your contacts. How many phone calls? How many visits? How many, how many coffees you're having with people? You know, how many house parties you're organizing to get groups together, which is totally awesome. And you probably should do that. But it is much harder to put an honest measure on the depth of the relationship that you are creating. And, you know, the, you know, is this person a four or a five? I mean, I don't know. And so right. I think, I think we have to sort of get comfortable with the idea that the relationships come before the money. I mean, this is an old cliche in fundraising, but you know, this, this work is not about money. It's about people and the process of learning who people are learning what motivates them, figuring out how your role in the organization and your organization mission fits with their needs and their desires and their dreams, um, it takes a while. And it's, it's complicated, and sometimes, sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. So what I would like, and this is a, you know, I'm getting on the soapbox here, but we have to give our fundraisers the space to spend some time in that area where there aren't necessarily metrics or there aren't necessarily deliverables, but the work is relationship building. And um, that's sometimes hard for those who like to count stuff to live with because it's ambiguous. 
I think the other thing is, is that we're not learning. So I'm working on a campaign right now. We're working with the executive, the, the senior leader, and we're working on the capital campaign and soliciting the first round of gifts, the first what we call a wave, the first wave of gifts. And sure. um, and uh, one of the things that as we were reporting recently to his board, we were talking about how very consistently in hindsight, because a lot of the people who will, a lot of the folks who will talk about messiness and ambiguity that will sort of be comfortable in these types of conversations will also tell you that in hindsight, a lot of clarity actually sort of reveals itself. And then you can take that, that those insights that, that you sort of learn from previous experiences. And my point is, is that generally speaking, if you're meeting, and this is obviously with regards very specifically to a capital campaign, but if you're meeting with a current donor in the midst of a capital campaign, and you're forthright in that first meeting that you're in a capital campaign, generally between between four and five meetings, you will close the gift. That's essentially what we have over the years, having worked on capital yeah, yeah. campaigns. You're not going to go more than four or five meetings. And we actually, his his first wave of gifts were secured with five lead donors, you know, multi-year pledges with a couple, da-da-da-da-da. But when we were meeting with this board, we sort of looked at that and he sort of crunched the numbers and he said, you know what? That's exactly right. It was about four meetings. We did four meetings with each of these individuals. Um, some of them went much more, you know, in a much more predictable fashion than than others. But to your point, I don't think fundraisers in this messy middle that we call it are are getting into this messy space enough so as to benefit from knowing that it's going to work out it, that, that even in the midst of this uncertainty yeah. and this ambiguity yeah, right. it's going to work right. out you know what i mean and so we're not yeah, developing that uncomfortable yes and and it, but if you never yeah. get in it if you never get in it how are you ever going to learn it well we're going to take this in a slightly different direction and you might remember last time around we talked a little bit about muddle through management um, yes, yes. And, you know, there was a study some years ago about different management strategies for businesses and came out of Stanford or Harvard or Wharton or, you know, one of the big business schools. And they studied different management strategies, different tools. And there was one that they called muddle through management, which is this idea that you show up, you look at the pile on your desk, you take something off the pile, you do it, you look at your checklist, you do something else on the checklist. You move a few things around, you do something else, and you, know, you call it a day. And the next day you come in, and the same pile is still on your desk, but you've chipped away at it. And what they discovered was that muddle through management as a strategy was at least as effective as any other strategy. And I bring this up because most of my career was at very small nonprofit organizations. There are many, many jobs I had where I was the sole fundraiser. I was the development department. So I was writing grants, and I was organizing events, and I was sending out direct mail, and I was doing the occasional phone bank, and I, you know, I was managing all this stuff. And a lot of my clients are small grassroots organizations without necessarily 10-person development departments or research arms or any of that stuff. And the life of a grassroots fundraiser is muddle, muddle, muddle. Sure. There's always <laughs> too much to do, right? You never get a list yeah. done. Right? Yeah. And there's always yeah. more good ideas and there's time to do it. And if you can't make peace with that, you will drive yourself nuts. So um, 
I embraced sloppiness is the wrong word because I want people to be professional and I want them to be organized and I want them to represent effectively. So we're not, this is not, we're not making the case for doing stuff in a half-assed fashion. We're saying do it well, but at the same yeah. time, it's going to be sloppy. There's going to be yeah. some flop. There's going to be some ambiguity. There's going to be some imperfection. And I would love to hear you talk about this, but my spiel to a lot of my clients these days, I said this on a Zoom call. I did a board training yesterday morning and was doing sort of board management 101 and helping them with board recruitment and job descriptions. And what I said at the end of the call is that I want you to do this imperfectly. And, you know, there was yeah. sort of a look and a sigh. And I said, because there's no other way you're going to do it. And accept that you're going to do it imperfectly and see what you learn. And each time you do it, you're going to do it a little better. So part of the ambiguity piece is accepting our own imperfection in doing these things and not beating ourselves up for being less than perfect. And I would love to hear your response. So, so Andy, that's exactly what we're doing with these two. So if you think about what lane one, lane one fundraising, what I generally were for gala, galas, golf tournaments and giving Tuesday typically plays out typically plays out regardless of what sort of fundraising method or effort you're doing, it typically plays out relatively predictably. It, it lands on a particular date on the calendar. If the volume is right, if the, you know, there's just so much to measure that can be relatively predictable. But what it also does, and this is again, why we define it as this is lane one at fundraising activity. It tends to be better oriented towards that initial gift. That's typically where you get the first gift. It's where the relationship is not, it's not been formed. The expectations have not been established. It's a really great place to get that initial gift. And what we're talking about, this distinction, and this boggles the mind of some other consultants that I described this to, I say, draw the line between the first gift and all the subsequent gifts. And all those subsequent gifts play out in that middle lane. And regardless of how you're interacting with the donor, whether it's by mail or at events or whatever, understand that that donor is now in the middle lane. They're in this messy middle. And whether you renew their support is going to be based on your awareness that you're in this messy sort of ambiguous space. And it oftentimes starts at that, for example, Andy, it starts at the point at which the donor has given that first gift and they now expect a telephone call and an acknowledgement of their gift. And, 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 if, and if, if they don't get a thank you call, regardless of the size of the gift, the likelihood of them renewing drops off significantly. You know, we know, I think I hear this statistic all the time, you know, four out of five initial gifts don't, don't get renewed. And I think it's because we're, we're unwilling to sort of acknowledge this difference between what, what works really well to get the first gift and what works really well to get the subsequent gift. And then the other thing is, Andy, and, and here's something for you to you to you to comment on. Yeah. So you you've gotten your head. You've got the you've gotten this idea of muddling through. You've got this idea of ambiguity. You've got my idea here now of this idea of the messy middle. I think right. the messy middle is actually where our fundraising colleagues, the ones who actually have full time fundraising jobs, unlike the direct response companies, unlike the uh, capital campaign consulting firms. I think it's this messy middle where all that messy ambiguity is based around the relationship where most of our fundraisers can thrive, and yet we can't get enough fundraisers to get their heads wrapped around it. 
and understand that that's your place. That's, that's where the magic happens between you and the donor. It's also where all the margins are at. So it's where the, you know, where the dollar raised actually starts to do more than just pay for itself. You follow what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. So I'll give you a couple of responses here. First of all, I mean, let's talk donor retention because that's where you're going. When I started, and this is 40 something years ago, um, typical donor retention rates in the industry were somewhere between two thirds and three quarters. So 65, 70, 75%. Those are the donors you would keep year over year. You'd lose, you know, maybe a third or a quarter of your list and you'd retain the others. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my understanding is like last year or the year before in recent years, donor retention across the nonprofit community has dropped below 50%. Yeah, so we yeah. are losing half of our donors year over year. And it's way harder to recruit a new donor than to keep one. And, you know, I think the reason we're losing so many is exactly what you said. We sort of stink at stewardship. Um, we don't do a good job engaging people after they give. We don't do a good job of being in relationship with them when we're not asking them for money. And, you know, there are certainly donors out there that feel like ATMs, like every contact they're being tapped for, for cash. And if your organization is like that, I think it's a problem because we have to engage with our donors at different ways when we're not always soliciting them. So is it necessary, Andy? Is it necessarily, because if you think about it, if you think about what's, what stewardship really is with a donor who's already giving to your organization, stewardship yep. isn't a whole lot different than like the conversation you and I are having right now. If, if you were my donor, I could be on the telephone having some completely off the wall conversation with you, and this could be stewardship, right? Is, yep. is it that we suck at stewardship or is it actually that we suck at ambiguity that, that, that because we can't find I mean, just to bring it back right where you started, oh, is funny. the problem really, is the problem really that we don't know what stewardship looks like? Because I've had, I mean, this, this conversation is probably going to air at like 325 conversations. I think, I think fundraisers are remarkably good at, at what I would consider to be stewardship, but it's the fact that, that once you move to that place, you, you're now in this, this messy, ambiguous, unpredictable space where you don't necessarily know what the results are going to be. And we haven't done enough of it so as to trust it that, hey, I guarantee you, if you pick up the phone and have a nice conversation with Andy, yeah. he'll probably renew his support the next time he gets something in the mail. Okay. So I, I, I like your analysis a lot. And I literally this afternoon got a phone call from, um, a nonprofit person that I have not yet met, but works at an organization I have supported for years, who just went through a, a, the opposite of a merger. This is an organization that sort of split in half. And, you know, I got a call from this person describing what had happened and why it had happened. And I asked very hard questions and I got good, thoughtful answers. And, you know, as a result of this conversation, I am highly likely to make a renewal gift to this group. Whereas right. if I had heard about it over the grapevine um, or through rumor, I probably would have written them off the list. Like, what the heck happened? Why did this group go through this transition? That, that sounds funky right. to me. Right? right. I don't necessarily trust them anymore. But this person made the point of 
scheduling a call, picking up the call, spending 30 minutes with me on the phone. Um, there was not a hard ask. It was mostly, we just want to let you know what happened here and why it happened. And we hope that you'll encourage, you know, we hope to encourage you to, to keep your support. And, you know, because my questions were answered and I got a thoughtful, non-pushy conversation, I think I'm back in the game. I think they're going to get another gift from me. <laughs> Right? Of course they so are. I'm a, of course. I'm, a case, I'm a case study for what you just said. And you talk about ambiguity. Again, this is an organization that just divided in two and created two groups. And so that's interesting. And it's messy. And we spent 30 minutes talking about the messiness and the ambiguity of it. Um, and I understand why it happened. And, you know, one of the things I'll have to think about as a donor, am I going to support one half of this organization, the other half, or both? And I haven't decided. Yeah, and see, and but I, I got to tell you, see, the, one, I, the one who picked up the phone got first dibs. The, the, here's the here's the thing. I don't think I think we've taken. So you've got my lane one. You've got my lane team. You've got your ambiguity. I think yeah. we have tried to design this notion of stewardship as if it can function in lane one, when in fact stewardship is nothing more than a willingness on the part of the organization to say that once a donor has given their first gift we have to we have to we have to uh, uh communicate to them somehow that we're willing to move into this messy ambiguous space in order to determine if we're going to renew their gift the donor's already very predictably given that first gift yeah but but, but to get that second gift is going it re- requires us to say hey it's 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 what we talk about in gift theory. It's the idea of reciprocation. It's the idea of sort of yeah. closing the loop, the feedback loop on what it means to actually exchange a gift. And if you're not willing to demonstrate that you're willing to sort of close that loop on a gift, yeah, you know, stewardship to me. When I hear when I talk to a client, I say, look, just throw all your 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 stewardship logic out the window because you're basically trying to turn it into a machine, a very predictable machine, just like the letter that went out that got the right. initial gift. Right. I and want you have three. I, if you have three touches on this calendar. That's your stewardship, and we're that's not what we're talking about. Here. That that's right. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is like you and I doing this call. The first one got botched up. Um, what, what, what got, what happened here with you and I is no different than what happened with you in that particular organization and trusting that process. Yeah. Um, that's that. Well, let me, let me, let me introduce another word to this, which is transparency. And I think part of the transparency is naming with the donor that you're entering into this ambiguous space. Yeah. And, um, yeah. You know, I mean, here's a, here's an example of this. I, I often train people how to set up appointments, meet with owners, and do asks in person. So, you know, it's an ask training. And we do role plays and, you know, stuff I'm sure you've done in your career. And <laughs> what I'll say to people at the end of the workshop, I'll say, here's your homework. I want you to pick three people that you trust, that you know pretty well, and I want you to call them up and have this conversation. I want you to say, I just went to a, a fundraising training We're learning how to ask for money. It's a little awkward. I don't know if I know how to do it well. I have picked three people that I want to practice on, and you're one of those three people, and may I come and practice on you? And just so we're clear, it's a real ask. I hope you'll give money. But more than the money, what I need is feedback, because I don't know what I'm doing here. And you can help me do it better. Will you be my partner? May I come and practice on you? 
And, you know, so the, the, the situation there is you're literally getting vulnerable with the donor. You're saying, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out. Will you help me figure it out too? Which is the definition of the word messy. And what I love about that strategy is, A, the stress is reduced because everybody knows it's practice. B, you're probably going to get a gift out of sympathy for no other reason because you made yourself vulnerable. But I think what is most powerful there is you just ask the donor to be part of the fundraising team because they are helping to critique your pitch and they're helping you learn how to ask sure. questions and yes. follow their lead <laughs> in the conversation, right? So, I mean, what I'm saying is not standard. This is not what most fundraising consultants or trainers will tell people to do. But I find that that level of vulnerability and transparency actually deepens that space that you are calling the messy middle because you are engaging with the donor as a person not just as a funder. And um, you're, you're expressing some need that they can help you solve, and people want to be of service. So I'm all about the ambiguity. I'm all about the transparency. I'm all about the imperfection, um, which, you know, do we make it? Worth... Go ahead. Yeah, Andy, before I let you, we're, as we're sort of winding down this conversation, I- I'm curious. Who sort of owns responsibility for this? Because part of my critique, so so you're a consulting guy, I'm a consulting yes, guy, and 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 you understand these three lanes that I'm describing. You know, early in my fundraising career, I figured out that there's a lot of consultants who like to be specialists in that lane one. They do all the direct response and how do you get the first gift? And then there's lots of consultancies that have figured out how to do the capital campaigns and the big gifts, which is that third lane. But there's not a lot of us out there. There's not a lot of us out there that are making a case. And I think it's actually very consequential for why the sector is, you know, why the the fundraising space is in sort of the messy predicament that it's in. We haven't made a valid argument. We haven't made an argument for this ambiguous, messy sort of space. Consequently, I don't think a lot of boards and bosses see it. I don't think they understand it. And, and when they hire fundraisers, they don't want to have anything to do with it. How much of this uh, is on us? Yeah. As consultants, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I um, mean, if you're not, if you're the, if you're the average Joe or Jane consultant and you're selling services that focus only on the big gifts and the little gifts and not the messy middle, yeah. you know, how much of this is on us for perhaps painting the wrong picture for our clients? Well, I think it's a fair critique, and where my brain goes with this is the idea that this is not just about fundraising. This is about organizational development. This is about how we recruit and train our boards. Yeah. I mean, part of the critique here is what we have been told consistently that nonprofits are supposed to operate more like, quote, unquote, businesses. You know, we're supposed to yeah. have a corporate model, right? And the corporate yeah. model yeah. is metrics up the wazoo. Everything is measured. And everything is monetized and everything is quantified, right? I mean, we're in the business of, you know, ending homelessness and feeding the hungry and providing spiritual support and um, protecting the wilderness. And, you know, we're doing things in the nonprofit community that are a little harder to measure because they're about people's spirit. And so I think a lot of this goes back to the corporatization of nonprofits and I think a lot of consultants have fallen into that particular mindset. And, 
you know, I'm swimming upstream here because this is a pretty big river running in my direction. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think that's a partial answer to your question. And we have to acknowledge the fact that, yes, we need money to operate. And yes, we need money to fulfill our missions. That is all true. And we need to get better at getting money. But at the end of the day, we are not businesses. We have social missions, yeah. right? We're trying yeah. to solve yeah. problems in our communities. And that stuff is ambiguous. And it's messy, yeah. right? So I, I would, you know, to continue the metaphor here, I would work upstream from your question, which is to say, is this about fundraising or is this about the culture of our organizations and the culture of the nonprofit sector? And yeah, I there, think it's there's a, um, a cultural problem. There's a, there's a great author. Her name's Natalie Natalie Davis. She's a sociologist and uh, she teaches humanity. I think she taught at Princeton for a long time. And she talks about how human beings sort of exist in these three modes. And two of those modes that I think you're talking about, sort of how 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 we as consultants perhaps confuse, is simply what she calls the sales mode and the gift mode. And I think I think what you and I are advocating for is this gift mode and understanding that this. What, what Davis talks about in her book, that there's a repertoire of behaviors and there's an etiquette and, and gestures and all sorts of things that go with the exchange of gifts that are distinctly different than the, you know, what we're, what we experience in the marketplace with buying and selling. And, um, and I'm, I'm with you, Andy. I, at the, what I teach over at the college and what we teach our consultants is very consistent with what you're saying. We're, we're very much in the, uh, I think we've uh, commercialized and marketized far too much of what we do. Um, Andy, we lose our listeners in about 40 minutes, and I don't want to miss the opportunity to ask you once again to tell us about the conference that you're going to be a part of with Mazarine and the other consultants. And then, um, and then too, if there's somebody who's listening today, I know you're interested perhaps more in hearing from those who are interested in consulting. So tell us a little bit about that. Remind us about the conference and then wrap this up with with perhaps who you'd like to hear from if they decide to reach out to you. Love it. So the conference, again, is on August 25-26. It's virtual and international. It's the Nonprofit Consulting Conference, which you can Google and find it. And it's for both seasoned and new people in the nonprofit consulting space, and we invite you to join us. Over 200 people have already registered, so it's pretty substantial. And as far as how to reach me, I'm going to give you two websites. There's andyrobinsononline.com. That's sort of my home base. And then there's also trainyourboard.com, which was first a book and then a website and now a blog and a video training series and a number of things. And you can find me and about me there. And, you know, I'm happy to support people who are coming into the consulting world. I also provide a lot of training for organizations. I'm training on fundraising and board development and planning, uh, ambassadorship, um, a variety of things. So um, Zoom has been my best friend for the past two and a half years. It's worked out well for me. So um, if you want me to serve you in some way, reach out and let me know how I can help. And Jason, thank you again for inviting me and um, for this really thoughtful conversation. It's been a pleasure, Andy. You're always welcome back. Yeah, enjoy the deck and the cigar and have a fun afternoon. And and thank you, everyone, for listening. 
Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.